Okay. I think we are all set up. Technical difficulties solved. Uh, hello, everyone in person land. Hello, everyone in not in person land. Uh, I just want to start by saying thank you for the opportunity. Test, test, one, two. Um, the opportunity to speak with you again. Uh, Liam, I think mommy's calling you. Yeah, we're good. We're good. Yeah, the microphone's picking me up. We're, we're good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, thanks for the opportunity, guys. Um, and, you know, Eric called me up a couple weeks back, actually, and we were out of town, and it came around again. Um, so I'm excited to jump in. Why don't we start with a word of prayer, and then we'll see uh, what God's placed on my heart for us today. Dear God, we come before you on this beautiful, beautiful summer day here in Garden Grove, uh, we come as one to, to listen to your word, to hear what you have for us, uh, ready to, to ruminate over it, ready to, to uh, implement it, to talk about it, to think about it. And uh, we thank you. We thank you for this opportunity. I pray that this message would, uh, would touch us and that it would be one that would help us to do your kingdom work here on earth as it is done in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so um, when Eric called me up, he said that you guys were looking at trees, right? And I thought it was awesome because, you know, we're outside with all the trees, right? Uh, but the trees in the Bible, and, uh, you know, he kind of gave me a list of, of different trees and stuff. And uh, the first one that jumped out at me was the tree of knowledge of, of good and evil, right? So I had to take that one because, I mean, you know why? Agricultural revolution, exactly. So, uh, we're going to be looking at the tree of knowledge of good and evil today and see how, uh, you know, that tree maybe connects to us, uh, connects to American history, you know, how we like to do it. Uh, so, let's go ahead and dive in. If you've got a Bible out there, we are going to dive into Genesis chapter 2, starting with verse 15. And uh, this is basically the account of, of creation here, and specifically uh, a little mention of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then we're going to dive into the fall as well. So starting uh, chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. So, we've got it right there. There's a tree. There's one tree in the entire garden. That, right? We all know this story. You can't eat it. You can't touch it. You can't even think about it, right? Don't go anywhere near it. You'll be cool. It's this tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? Now, let's fast forward a little bit. Let's go down to uh, the beginning of chapter 3 right there. We're going to pick it up with verse 1. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. 
You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the fruit was beautiful, and its fruit looked, I'm sorry, that the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness, so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. And I want to just jump forward a little bit. Uh, God kind of, right, it continues. God, you know, discovers what has happened. Uh, he rebukes the uh, serpent. He begins to rebuke them as well. And let's jump forward to verse 16 in chapter 3. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man he said, Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made, for you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. All right. So a couple things, right? What do we see? What, what have we seen here? Well, we've got the tree, right? Tree of knowledge of good and evil. Right? Not supposed to eat it. They do eat the fruit. And what are the specific things that come out of that? Well, they, they realize their nakedness, right? And painful childbirth. And sweat of your brow, right? You're going to work the land. Basically, farming... By sweat of brow. And there it is, agricultural revolution. We're done. Wait, we can, I'm, okay. Uh, so, right, I mean, what does that mean? I mean, a couple things, right? Number one, the moment that they get this knowledge, right, the moment that they, that, that they receive this knowledge of good and evil, the first thing they do is they say, I'm naked. Right? Which is interesting, right? I mean, when I think of knowledge of good and evil, I don't necessarily think of my nakedness being the first thing on that list, right? Or my realization of me being naked. But from a historical perspective, right, if we look at the ramifications of that, you see kind of this, you know, separation of civilized versus uncivilized, right? And I would say this is a direct product of probably the historical event that is happening here, right? This event that this creation myth that we have here is kind of depicting is how does humanity get to the place that it's in now, right? Why are we living in settlements, right? Why are we treating each other the way we treat each other? There used to be a time where we didn't live that way, right? And the event that transpired that changed that was this moment of realizing good versus evil, this moment of... Um, kind of understanding that there was a new life that we could 
go out and procure and control through working the land, right? In essence, the previous life of hunter-gathering, right, didn't sustain large groups and required complete reliance on nature and the group itself, right? When you, before you realized how to control the land, you had to rely on each other. I mean, if you were a hunter-gatherer out there on your own, what was the likelihood that you were going to be successful and survive? Maybe not, right? You needed the group, you needed to be reliant upon the group, and not just that, but you were reliant on, on nature. In essence, you were forced to be reliant on God, right? Because you had no control. You had no control. After eating of this tree, though, and gaining this knowledge, you figured out, hey, I can control my surroundings, right? And as I begin to control, as societies began to control their surroundings, they became, it became necessary, it became... Uh, in order to continue to sustain this, you know, society that they were building, they had to continue to gain more and more land. In essence, the agricultural revolution placed an importance on ownership of land to sustain society and, more so, conquest against those that they now could deem as being evil, right? The knowledge of good and evil. So there's certain things out there that are evil... And uh, these evil outsiders, right, uh, it's, we are justified in taking their land, right? Not only that, but conquest becomes a means to bolster the social order and for social advancement among farmers. Which brings us to our first secondary source here. A little historical example. Uh, this was a paper out of the University of Chicago, written by Mr. Seth Richardson, titled Mesopotamia and the New Military History. Diving forward here, this is a portion titled Land Tenure and Pay. So here's what he has to say. How then were men induced to endanger their lives through military action on behalf of the state? As we see Mesopotamian politics changing from proto-historic urban communes into territorial states, their militaries become most profoundly socially integrated through the land tenure regimes which tied primary producers through service obligations. The economies of these states remained overwhelmingly agrarian no matter how large they grew. Their redistributive administrations harnessed to the incessant conversion of harvests into goods and services, of which defense was one. At their inception, state claims on military service were thus secondary benefits of a wider program to grow their base of agriculturally productive clients. For the soldier, the benefits of these arrangements included not only landholding, but access to irrigation, community membership, draft animal power, and economic security and mobility, not to be underestimated in a time and place in which landlessness or dependent status were less palatable alternatives. For the state, the distribution of service land had the benefit of installing clients and promoting loyalism by making soldiers political stakeholders. So this moment of eating of the fruit, as it introduces agriculture to the greater society creates this relationship where conquest is a necessary thing. Not only conquest to continue to sustain the society, because if you don't continue to add land, then it's going to start to crumble, 
But number two, it becomes a selling point for the farmer, right? Conquest means more land. Your service in the military means access to better resources, access to more land that you can use. So it's a self-reinforcing model that kind of creates this machine of empire, right? This imperial machine. And the story, right, of the Old Testament then is a story of the Israelites coming to terms with this new life, this life that was created by the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? It sets in motion a new way of understanding the world, a new way of interacting with the world, and uh, this Old Testament is that story. It tells the story of Israel's development within this new way of life, Abraham's procurement of land, right? The Hebrews as a conquered people, right? As the Egyptians' uh, conquest over their land, right? Uh, the nomadic life in the wilderness of trying to relearn a different way of life, separate from that tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? Their eventual desire for a king and the interaction between God and Samuel, where it's kind of this, hey, you know, you don't really need a king. I mean, let's kind of face it. That's the way of that other tree. And ultimately, the development of a prophetic tradition that critiqued that life, right? For the most part, you look at the prophets and they're talking about, hey, right? Don't forget about the community, right? Don't forget about the downtrodden, right? That other life that predated this tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? And we got, you know, Jesus who ultimately culminates that new life. So let's go ahead and dive in to what Jesus has for us here. And for that part, we're going to look at John chapter 3, starting in verse 3. Jesus has something to say on this, on these events. Verses 3 through 8. And uh, Jesus is talking to uh, Nicodemus here, right? A uh, Pharisee, Nicodemus, kind of saying, hey, you know, I, I, I feel what you're, what, you're, what you're throwing at us, but, you know, we got to meet at nighttime because, you know, I got a job and, like, people, you know. Anyway, uh, Jesus replied, verse 3, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going. So you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. So this interaction here, Jesus introduces us to the idea of being born again. And for the purposes of what we're saying here, I, I would suppose, or I would propose that Jesus is saying, hey, initially you're born into this system as it exists, a system that was born of that moment when Eve, Adam and Eve ate of the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What we need to do is retrain our brains. In essence, we need to be born again into a system that is more of that right tree of life, right? A system that uh, relinquishes us from that control of conquest, of uh, self-preservation, right? And instead, plugs us back into the larger community and being reliant upon God, right? So if we continue to look at Jesus' life, right, and his teachings... His acceptance of the outcast, right, the sick, the, the Samaritan woman, right, sinners in general, and his selflessness as shown by his acceptance of death on the cross 
introduced a new life that rejected conquest and resource procurement in favor of a life that expanded the group and relied on God. Right? He said, hey, we don't have to live the rat race. Right? You can live based on that old life, right? The, 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 the tree of life, right? And, you know, his new life was so revolutionary that it swept through the largest empire of the time, right? Belief in this life swept through the Roman Empire, even in the face of deadly persecution, because it was true, right? It was the light. It was the truth. People said, man, I, sure, I'm dying, but you know what? This, this is the truth, and I can't turn my back on it, right? And it was powerful. And we know the story of Paul and his uh, the persecution he faced, and Peter, and, and, and spreading the word, and continuing to stand up in the midst of that against that kind of imperial tree of knowledge of good and evil, yet they uh, persisted, right? But something changes. Something changes, right? It all changes with Constantine, and this was new to me, um, Eusebius, a bishop of Caesarea. I had not heard tell of Eusebius and his, the part that he played in this. And we're going to go to a book here uh, that I just finished reading in a, uh, a book study men's group at my church, Unsettling Truths, The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery, uh, written by Mark Charles, who is, he's Native American, uh, he's from the Navajo tribe, uh, but Navajo and Dutch American, so he, he references the Reformed Church quite a bit in here, uh, but he's talking about the doctrine of discovery. We're going to dive into, where am I going here? Page 56, let's see what uh, they have to say. They're talking about Eusebius here in this moment, this Constantinian moment. In the decade following the Battle of Milvian Bridge, a Constantinian imagination and narrative were constructed. So when Constantine finally relayed the account of his vision of Christ, the stories were hence reactions, not catalysts. Constantine was adding to the, quote, myth of himself, end quote a myth that Eusebius had an active hand in constructing. Yet, when the persecution of Christians reached his own hometown and touched Eusebius personally, his attitude towards persecution changed. In seeking to end it, Eusebius ordained the most likely emperor from the powerful and oppressive Roman Empire as, quote, God's chosen ruler, end quote. Constantine's dubious account of Jesus taking sides in a violent conflict was not condemned as heretical and as inconsistent with the biblical account of Jesus. Jesus repeatedly stressed the reality of suffering rather than the triumph and victory of an earthly messiahship. When Jesus stood trial, Pilate was looking for an excuse to free Jesus and asked him, Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus could have acknowledged Pilate's power, flattered him, and ordained him as God's chosen ruler for such a time as this, as Eusebius did for Constantine. Jesus could have played to Pilate's ego and coaxed Pilate to set him free. Instead, Jesus spoke prophetically to Pilate and was handed over to be crucified. This heretical vision fit Eusebius's hopes to end the persecution of the church. Therefore, he recorded and promoted the vision not only as historical fact, but also as a sound theological conclusion. The idea of Christendom, an earthly Christian empire, is an extra-biblical concept that is not aligned with the teachings of Jesus. Participation in the early church was based on repentance, baptism, confession, discipleship, and community. The church of Jesus Christ was solidified, refined, and strengthened through the shared and promised experience of persecution. A convert to Christianity would join a community of believers 
as an act of submission to the kingdom of God, knowing full well that their conversion would result in carrying a cross. With the advent of Christendom under Constantine, admission into the kingdom of God became entangled with participation in and protection from an earthly empire. In seeking to end the persecution of Christians, Eusebius allowed Constantine to fundamentally alter what membership in the church looked like. Instead of joining the church intentionally, sacrificially, and in opposition to empire, membership in the church now depended upon citizenship in and allegiance to one of the most powerful and historically oppressive empires in the world. So, this um, bishop of Caesarea plays a part in taking what had been separate, right? Jesus' new life, right? So, kind of got Jesus' new life of, you know, um, of selflessness, right? Community. and reliance on God that he had proposed and that flourished for 300 years, right? Eusebius ties these two together. He locks them back in. He reintroduces this other way of life. Let's face it, out of a desire to live, right? And not to die, I mean, facing that, he makes that choice, but maybe inadvertently, he now weds those lives. He, he kind of, it's almost uh, an agricultural revolution, or, you know, that moment. It's, 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 it's a fork on the road moment where Eusebius chooses the easier path, right? From that point forward, the new life of Christianity that Jesus had proposed had been re-yoked to the tree of knowledge of good and evil path, right? So, what ramifications, then, does this shift hold for us as American Christians today? And that's where our final source comes in. Uh, this book was written by Greg Grandin. He's a professor out of Yale. Uh, the End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America. And he gives us a good look at uh, the frontier thesis. How many of you are familiar with... I mean, the frontier, the wilderness, and how it has loomed large in the American psyche since our inception, right? There was a historian, Frederick Jackson Turner, who put forward something known as the frontier thesis at the end of the 19th century, and uh, Grandin touches on that, so I'm going to read a little bit from his book here. Turner's main argument which he advanced in his 1893 essay, as well as in subsequent writings, is straightforward. America's vast, open West created the conditions for an unprecedented expansion of the ideal of political equality, an ideal based on a sense that the frontier would go on forever. The wilderness seemed so unending, left alone with their visions of unlimited resources, pioneers would transform nature and deepen democratic values, independence, personal initiative, and above all, individualism but also fairness, honesty, and trust, a kind, of mutual, a kind of frontier mutualism. In a harsh land prior to the arrival of the state, pioneers had to find a balance between self-reliance and cooperation, extending relations of commerce and rules of law. When the government did show up, and as local markets evolved into a national economy, 
these frontier values spread throughout the country, shaping its institutions. Frontier individualism, Turner said, didn't just exist on the frontier, it was found everywhere in the country, in its cities, villages, and ports. Because of the existence of the frontier, that is, because individualism was generated on the frontier, and because the frontier kept a check on other, less wholesome tendencies, including demands for wealth redistribution, that more or less is what Turner's argument is, right? So, and it sounds good, right? It's beautiful. And in a lot of ways, it's part of America's kind of creation myth, right? I mean, this, this frontier thesis codified this understanding of rugged individualism as being uniquely American, right? And the frontier was the thing that, that created that existence, right? But Grandin continues. Um, he has a critique of that. He, he feels that uh, Turner missed some things. Muted in Turner's writing are the celebrations of the conquering passions that accompanied the removal of Native Americans or the U.S. invasion of Mexico, which imagined the Mexicans disappearing from the earth. Turner wrote no sentence anywhere near as callous as this one composed by Theodore Roosevelt in 1889, which cited the march of civilization to condone the elimination of Native Americans. The settler and pioneer have, a bottom, have at bottom had justice on their side. This great continent could not have been kept as nothing but a game preserve for squalid savages. Turner de-emphasized genocidal hatred as a justification of U.S. expansion, unlike, say, the historian Bernard Balin, who has recently identified a, quote, deep, pervasive racism, end quote, as motivating settler terror. There's no rape as a shock strategy in Turner's account of the frontier, though that strategy was used by settlers and soldiers. There's no burning indigenous peoples out of their villages, no slaughtering their children as they fled the flames, no retaliatory killings, no Andrew Jackson rousing his men to, quote, pant with vengeance, end quote, and turn themselves into, quote, engines of destruction, end quote, to slaughter creeks and mutilate their bodies. Just three years before Turner's Chicago panel, the 7th Cavalry murdered upward of 250 Sioux men, women, and children at Wounded Knee, South Dakota. Yet all of the many things the frontier is in Turner's 1893 paper, one thing the frontier is noticeably not much of is a military front. Turner does note in passing that each successful frontier, the fall of the Alleghenies, the Mississippi, the Missouri, and the 99th Meridian, was, quote, won by a series of Indian wars, end quote. But then he proceeds to muffle the voice of these wars. Theodore Roosevelt, again, is illustrative. His many-volume, The Winning of the West, published in the 1880s, begins with a classic statement of the germ principle, identifying Andrew Jackson's victory over the Creeks as one battle in a war that started with the Saxon conquest of Britain and continued forward in a larger crusade to conquer the, quote, world's waste spaces, end quote. Roosevelt's history reads like an epic poem, to the doctrine of discovery, a brutalist's answer to those who were beginning to show concern about the extermination of Native Americans. Here's a quote from Roosevelt. Let the sentimentalists say what they will. The man who puts the soil to use must of right dispossess the man who does not, or the world will come to a standstill. So one thing that Turner kind of leaves out of his frontier thesis is all the conquest, right? All the kind of dirty, ugly, Right? I would propose tree of knowledge of good of evil that was a part of, that America in essence was born into, this reliance, right? I mean, who else in the world had this humongous backyard beckoning to them, right? And what other society in the world, when social issues arose around distribution of resources, could easily just say, hey, young man, go west, right? Don't cause any problems here, just go find your way out there. But then going west required what? Conquest, right? 
killing, destruction, warfare, this, right? Tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, Turner touched on something, or not Turner, I'm sorry, Grandine touched on something there, the doctrine of discovery, which brings us back to the unsettling truths here. I just want to talk about, so, you know, where does this come from? Why, what is it that really unleashes this sort of position upon the North American continent? And I would say, you know, it goes back to Eusebius, and it goes back to the tying, Eusebius's tying of Jesus' new life with the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What is the doctrine of discovery? It is a set of legal principles that governed the European colonizing powers, particularly regarding the administration of indigenous land. It is the, quote, primary legal precedent that still controls native affairs and rights and international law formulated in the 15th and 16th centuries. From a theological perspective, the legal and political role of the doctrine of discovery is rooted in a dysfunctional theological imagination that shaped the European colonial settler worldview. They mentioned the 15th and 16th century, so 1400s, 1500s. The church is creating this doctrine of discovery to apply to these new lands that Christian, you know, explorers are discovering. So when, you know, the Puritans and the pilgrims come to, you know, the uh, American continent in the 17th century, that is kind of the rule. And, and I would propose that Teddy Roosevelt's words and his history about, you know, unused land, about putting that land to good use is born of the doctrine of discovery, right? This understanding that the Christian world is a world that is, um, uh, you know, um, industrious, right? And it puts this land to use, and because they're, you know, because of that, they have right to it. Uh, the authors continue here, page 22. As Stephen Newcomb notes, what is generally referred as the doctrine of discovery might be more accurately called the doctrine of Christian European arrival, or better still, the doctrine of Christian European invasion. The doctrine of discovery served a dual function, a theological, quote, doctrine that served as an affirmation from the church of Euro for European atrocity and a political, even military doctrine that provided political boundaries and mediation between colonial settler powers. The concept of the other stands in direct opposition to the teachings of the New Testament. Theology that arises from Scripture and from the teachings of Jesus does not allow for the identification and exclusion of the other as the doctrine of discovery did. A Christian Reformed Church task force concluded that, quote, the doctrine of discovery encoded racial ideas that created a hierarchy within humanities that invariably placed European Christian nations in the position of power, and, quote, the assumption of white supremacy took root in the imagination of the Western mind here. This imagination and narrative have become embedded realities in the American Christian worldview, and it's that reality that fueled the way that we interacted with our frontier. All right? So to kind of close it up here, I know I've been going for a little bit. Grandine continues in his book, and he talks about how the frontier has always been remade throughout American history, right? whether it was the literal land frontier in the uh, 1800s, or whether we were able then, once the frontier closed, which is part of why Frederick Jackson Turner wrote his frontier thesis in 1893, uh, we were able to expand that into the Pacific. And in a lot of ways, over the course of the last 30 years, after the Cold War, we were kind of able to expand it throughout the world, right? But now we're at a moment where the frontier 
is kind of officially closed, right? There's not much else that we can go to. And as a result, we can't tell those young men to go west anymore. Now we actually have to kind of deal with the social problems rather than just finding somewhere else to go and conquer. Grandine writes about how throughout our history we have been able to remake the frontier. I'm not going to reread that. But uh, so what do we do, right? We've kind of come to the realization that we have kind of been reconnected to this tree of knowledge of good and evil. How do we as individuals go about, you know, severing that connection? And is there hope? Well, there is hope. There is hope. Our hope still lies in the new life, right? Um, and we're going to go to Revelation to check that out, to check out the hope. Revelation 22, starting with verse 1. We're going to read verse 1 and verse 2. Part of our mythos here. Promise of what will eventually come to fruition. Then the angel showed me, and this is John writing here, showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. We have a promise, right? That in the future, in eternity, eternity holds the keys to the tree of life again. And it will, right? This way of life that we've lived in for so long will come to an end, um, right? I suppose, I suppose our job today is to, right, be willing, as Jesus did, to challenge and question the creation myth of, you know, the, the Israelite people. And maybe we should be willing to kind of question the, some of the creation myth, right, of our own nation and be willing to kind of sever that tie. And that's what I got. So. I didn't actually come up with any uh, discussion questions officially. Yeah. Yeah, 22, 1 through 2. Uh, then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. I guess one thing that I pondered, and it was early on when I was thinking about what I was going to talk about, and it didn't end up making it in there. You know, we've got the Great Commission, right? Which beckons us to a frontier, right? It beckons us to a frontier. How can we, in light of how we've kind of traditionally gone into the frontier, how, how do we, you know, uphold the Great Commission in a new life sort of way, and not in a good-slash-evil sort of way, right? Yeah, for sure. I thought what you said was really important, and I was, I was drawing it out in my mind as, as you were talking about this. You said something along the lines of like a fork in the road, Yeah. and what you've been talking about the whole morning is just all these forks in the road. So we have the garden, and then we have a tree, 
right? And this, this is the first fork in the road, right? So you can choose the tree of life or you can choose the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So mm -hmm. we go down here, right? And this kind of sets us on a trajectory, right? Yeah. So we follow that trajectory throughout the Old Testament. Jesus kind of comes into this, right? And then he offers another fork in the road, mm -hmm. right? So he offers us, again, kind of maybe a return to this path up here. This, I don't know, this kind of parallel universe <laughs> kind of comes to mind. I know that's not the right thing, right? So you can choose kind of up here or you can, I mean, there were people that chose down here. Mm -hmm. And then we have this kind of Constantine, uh, Eusebius fork in the road, yeah. right? Which ends up taking us probably back down here, mm -hmm. right? So we kind of go, if we were to trace it, we go here, 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 here. And then we hit, then you kind of almost fast forwarded us to like, you know, we kind of brought it to America, right? Yeah. So now we hit the frontier. I'm just gonna use an F because I'm running out of, out of room, right? And the frontier kind of, again, is, is this other fork in the road. Do we continue down here? The words that you used down here were conquest. Um, you used conflict. Or, or do we, we kind of come again returning to these words up here, right? This, this kind of is symbolic of, of this kind of choice of line. Mm -hmm. Do we return up here? And that's kind of the, the question. And I think, I think this book of Revelation, that last tree, ends up up here on this line, right? So this, is, this has kind of always been the line that we've wanted to follow. Um, and this, these, these are the, just the forks in the road on a grand scale. Mm -hmm. But then the forks in the road that we kind of we kind of choose each day. So that's that's how I was hearing what you were saying. Is that is that kind of what you're? I think you've got it. Yeah. So history, I guess the black one would be this up down. Um, we're probably on this line here, right? Yeah. This kind of down. We're still in that conquest, that conflict. How do we even the church? But we are all kind of presented with that choice how do we move back up to the to the line that we want to be um and again you you did that using the quotes and and, and the information from those those books that were really really helpful but it really is these two these two trees are, are the two main pieces so no I, I think i need to like you take care of the artwork side of things so. <laughs> i need to go take an art class i think yeah. or even just a well, like I said, I didn't practice the whiteboard part of it. But. You were talking about that at the beginning because, you know, you get these sermons in your head, but you never think like, okay, what am I actually going to write on the whiteboard? Yeah. How is that going to work? So, um, yeah, does anybody, would anybody have any questions kind of in light of that? Where do you see maybe the church, maybe there's a moment where you see the church kind of down on this line or, or yourself down on this line in, in conquest, in conflict, in another word down here would be expansion. Mm -hmm. um, and then where maybe do you see the church or even yourself this life of selflessness community reliance on God um, where do you see that happening so maybe just turn to the person next to you if you're close to them and just, and just kind of talk about again where do you see again the church or even yourself in, down on this line and then where do you see the church or yourself kind of up on this line and try to think of maybe one or two specific examples um, and then I'll let Elliot show us the address and we'll say goodbye to the folks out there 
um, in Facebook land too. So that'll be it. So you can kind of think about those two questions and then we're just going to finish up a little bit of discussion. No, I think, yeah, you, for sure, yeah, that we, at all these points, definitely this is that fork in the road moment, mm -hmm. right? And Adam and Eve choose, unbeknownst to them, I mean, let's face it, right? I mean, who, who's, who's to know that choosing that is going to lead to that? And then, so then, yeah, humanity is here and kind of confused, right? I mean, it creates this, right? And you think that that's what life is, and then Jesus comes along and says, hey, no, there is a different life, mm -hmm. for sure. And, the, right, the early church seemingly kind of chooses that. And then because they are so different, right, they yeah. face that persecution. And then, again, can you blame Eusebio? I mean, you know, hey, I don't want to die, yeah. sort of thing, you know. Yeah. So, But then unbeknownst to him, it puts us back on that path for sure. Right. And now the frontier is kind of open-ended, right? I mean, at any moment, what do we do? Yeah, which, which kind of... Yeah. I like that how you tied in the frontier, too, to the, um, to the discipleship question. Because oftentimes we talk about discipleship or the Great Commission in these terms. Mm -hmm. Right, how are we going to go win that next convert, how are we going to expand into the neighborhood, how are we going to, instead of how are we going to, you know, serve, how are we going to build community, how are we going to depend on God more, um, so, and, and, and that's just kind of part of the language, building a great commission, yeah. um, but really, you know, teaching them, baptizing them, serving them, so, yeah, I think it's just kind of these, it's, again, the, the gospel's always been kind of these parallel Mm -hmm. universes, choices that we have that we have to face each day. I like that use of parallel universe, seriously. Like if Eusebius doesn't do that, then, you know, like who knows what happens, right? right? Yeah. If Adam and Eve don't do that, who knows what yeah. happens. If Jesus doesn't... Yeah, doesn't. if Jesus, in the face of Pilate, decides to say, hey, listen, you know. So. All right, take it over when you're... Sounds good. Five more minutes.